Good morning. Today's scripture is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Yep. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Uh, <clears throat> all right, good morning. How is everybody? How, how are, how is everybody? How, how are you? <laughs> Took a week off of talking. Didn't talk for a week, just joking. Um, okay, so um, <clears throat> as you may or may not know, <clears throat> uh, we just finished like a three-year journey through Matthew last two weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> and then we're all standing around looking at each other like, what do we do now? We could go again. Um, now let's do something new. So we're going to do Acts and then we're going to do, um, hold on. Okay, so we're going to do Acts, and then we are going to sort of maybe pause when Paul maybe gets to Corinth and do Romans, and then, because that's where he wrote it, and then we'll hop back into Acts and maybe keep going. We'll see. We shall see. Uh, That's all going to start in October. Um, Right now, though, is still September, and for this week and the next three weeks, we are going to do a few different things. I I never get to do, like, sort of topical things. I've always been, like, terrified of, like, being a, a person who preaches topical messages, because then I'm like, so every week you have to like, decide what you're going to talk about. Like, there's like, you just got to come up with something? That sounds like a lot of work. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I usually just go straight through books. But this, this week and next week, we're doing Trinitarian theology. Um, and then the, the two weeks after that, leading up to Acts, we're going to do sort of, uh, we're going to look at the Bible from different angles. What is it? How does it work? What is it doing? How do we get it? Um, and so this week is specifically sort of focused on this thing called Christology. Yeah, it's a fancy word um, that basically it's like, it's like what, is, what is what was Jesus? What was the makeup of Jesus? Like, like when we talk about Jesus, what are we talking about? What is my view of, of who Jesus was? Human, divine, human, divine, what is it? So this week we're going to talk about that and we're going to use a lot of church history. Um, <clears throat> I got a little creative. Um, this could be weird, although it could be fun. I have no idea how this is going to go. Um, but I had these ideas, and so here we go. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about sort of the problem that Jesus caused with humanity's view of God. Caused some serious problems, and they're in the Bible, and we're going to talk about those. So um, let's pray, and uh, let's do something different today, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would be here with us, that you would make yourself obvious and present, that as we gather together, that we would be a people of one heart and one mind bound together in unity and love, um, um, recognizing each other where, where we are, where they are, embracing them as they are, and, and coming together as the body of Christ as we journey together towards you. And... Uh, as I speak this morning, speak through me, allow me to remember the things I've studied, uh, allow all of us to be present, remove the distractions of our week. Um, <clears throat> I lift up all those who are suffering because of the, um, the hurricane last week, Father. We lift up all of them. We keep them in our, in our hearts. Um, let that translate 
into our hands. Let us figure out how we can best serve and um, be a part of the uh, uh, relieving, relieving our, our brothers and sisters of suffering. Um, show us what that means. Reveal that to us. Um, and let us be a sacrificial people in that way. Thank you, Father. Uh, in your name, amen. Um, we are in talks right now about what our response is going to be with the devastation in the Bahamas. Um, and once we sort of solidify that this is a good way to go, that's not going to cause more damage or whatever, then we're going we're gonna to let you guys know how you can all get involved together. Um, okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to start right here. Uh, because Deuteronomy chapter 6... Uh, we have a song we sing about Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, and we, once in a while, every few weeks, we will declare the Shema together, but the Shema, as we declare it, is more of like, a, it's what um, Dr. McKnight would call like the Jesus Creed, right? It's like a, it's the edited version of the Shema that Jesus um, came up with. Um, so in the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, as they would call it, there was a particular view of God, and that view of God was, was known and it was accepted, um, that view of God is, is really outlined for them in the Shema. And so it starts off, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. One Lord. Um, this was a huge deviation from the world that they knew. This is very different. This is sort of the beginning, the introduction of this idea of sort of monotheism. And yes, they struggled with um, with, with recognizing other gods. They struggled with polytheism but the big message that, that was given to them by God was, no, there is one. Um, the cosmos are not made. This was put up against, against like the pantheon of the ancient world, um, that the cosmos are not made out of other gods. The ground is not a god. The sky is not a god. The trees are not gods. Um, there is a god. These are things made of matter. And this god created those things. There is nothing to fear because this god is made of love. And so the response is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength because your very life is a gift from this God. Um, so it starts with the proclamation that God is one. There's no pantheon. Um, and this defined how they moved through the world. When it was time for war, the intention was that they would pray this prayer, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And they would realize, they would pause, and they would realize, it took a long time for this, but they would pause and they would realize, so there's only one God. And so we'd pray to our God for victory in battle. They're praying to their God for victory in battle. But the fact is there's only one God above all of us. Um, so God, you are also the God over them and the God over our enemies and the God over people around the world because there's only one of you. And so the question arises, um, how can I go to war with my brother and sister? Instead, I should invite them to know you as I know you and reveal the things that I understand about you and enter into relationship with these people. Um, it was meant to change. Now I can't war with you. I will bless you. It is meant to change how they view everything. And so um, this God was also, sometimes it was understood in sort of two different ways. There was, there was a way they spoke about God as, as being sort of the father. I'm going to build off of this. Uh, starts off as being the father, the creator of all things, right? Um, and from there, you also, as you move through the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you begin to see that sometimes there's this thing called the spirit of God. Um, that moves, uh, that, that shows up, and that is different. And it's understood that this, this spirit of God, uh, it, um, well, let's read some of these passages. Uh, you have the spirit of the Lord coming upon 
um, upon people in the book of Judges, upon rulers and kings, people judging the people. It says in Judges 3 times, the spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge. You go a little farther in the same book. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning um, the Abizarites to follow him. And then you have another one. Um, a woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson and he grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord. So now we have two different things working together. The Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him uh, while he was, he was in uh, Mahane. So we have, you begin to see this understanding that like sometimes God appears in spirits, other time God speaks as father. Um, but what they began to understand was that the father and the spirit were not the same thing. However, the father was God and the spirit was God. And so through the Hebrew scriptures, it's almost like they have this sort of binitarian view by meaning two, like this, this understanding that, okay, so, so God is, he's one God, um, but we understand him sometimes moving in spirit and sometimes speaking as father and sometimes the spirit is bringing people to, to listen to the father. Um, and there's this interesting relationship, and, but this is what they, became, what, what they began to see as acceptable language for speaking about God. Um, and then something else happened. Jesus happened. And Jesus caused a lot of problems with the ancient Hebrew peoples and the, the Israelite understanding of God. Um, um, so the early Jewish, uh, the early Christians were Jewish. Um, they worshiped in uh, these ancient synagogues. Um, they were considered for the first, you know, 100 years or so, just another sect of Judaism. Um, they would regularly um, utilize the synagogues and the temple, and they would practice their loyalty to Jesus, um, and they would teach each other about Jesus, and they would gather in these spaces, and it was just sort of an offshoot of Judaism at the time. Um, but over time, the language that they used began to really rub like sandpaper against the sort of Orthodox Jewish people that were there. Um, and so the early Christians, I want you to, I, this is something you sort of need to understand about the early Christians. They didn't have Bibles, okay? They had the Old Testament. This was their scriptures, they gathered and they read the Old Testament and they worshiped Jesus. So everything that they knew about Jesus um, and everything they spoke about Jesus and, and the ways that they followed Jesus was directly connected um, to, the, to the Old Testament. Um, for instance, there's this guy, Paul, um, this early apostle, and he goes into great detail connecting Jesus to the Jewish story, but the way he talks about Jesus becomes really problematic for the Jewish people. I'll give you uh, an instance of it. Uh, in Romans 9.5, he says, uh, theirs are the patriarchs. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking to some, some Gentiles about the Jews. And he said, theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God. And everyone kind of stops. If this was read in a synagogue, this would cause problems. And eventually it did. Uh, the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised Amen. So some, upon reading this, were tempted to say things like, well, Paul, obviously what happened was Paul got converted to a new religion. Like this is not Judaism. This is something different. But that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is rooting this thing in Judaism. Very much so. He's like, no, this is a part of the Jewish story. And then you go a little farther. Um, <clears throat> you go to passages like 1 Corinthians 8. And it gets really interesting because Paul takes the Shema, the Jewish prayer that they prayed every single day, and he combines it with 
the message of Jesus. He, he takes the Jewish thing and he, and he includes Jesus in it. He says, uh, for us there is but one God, the Father. Like, they understand what he's saying here. This is a reference to the Shema. And he says, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He's saying, everything that you believe about Yahweh, I also believe about Jesus. That he was there. Like, that, listen to what he's saying. From the Father, all things came. And through the Son, all things come. And then he says, for the Father, all things live. And through the Son, all things live. There's like, there's this connection between Jesus and the divine. And that what the divine was doing at the very beginning of, Hebrews, of the Hebrew story, Paul is saying Jesus was there and did it. That he was a part of this. Obviously, this would cause problems for the Jewish people. Um, but what you begin to see is that, remember, Paul is writing these letters and he's not defending them. He's not even arguing. He's not even, there's not a single letter of Paul that he writes and says, now here's how you talk about Jesus. He never does that because he didn't need to. These things were taken for granted. He just writes it as if they already believe it. And he sends this letter off to them. They're asking him questions in a letter and he replies and sends the letter back and says, you know this already. And the way he speaks of Jesus is this shocking way that they're like, well, they, they already believed this. The early Jewish Christians were accepting Jesus as a part of the Godhead. Um, and the way that they began to talk about Jesus moved them from this sort of binitarian mode into something different. Now you have the son who is not the father and he is not the spirit, but he is God. And the father who is not the son or the spirit, but is God. And the spirit who is not the father or the son, but is God. And you could speak of God and refer to any one of them. And this was acceptable somehow. <clears throat> and and there's, no, there's no writing that is defending it. It's just something they accepted. How could they ex just accept this kind of thing? Um, well, this is what would cause problems later on in church history. Because as you ponder this idea, this wasn't all that confusing of an idea for the early Christians because they knew Jesus. They were there. They saw Jesus and what they saw in Jesus forever changed their view of God, of how they spoke of God. But as you move a couple clicks down through the generations, those people did not see Jesus. And they're left with these writings that speak of God this way. And they're trying to figure it out because they didn't have a human model, Jesus, to show them what this was like. And so they're sitting around tables and they're having church services and they're in like elder meetings and they're taught, well, how do we explain Jesus? How do we talk about God in this way? Um, and what we actually begin to see is that they're wrestling over what we now call, okay, so here's, a, here's another theological term, uh, proto-Trinitarian texts. And it sounds really fancy. Proto-Trinitarian, proto meaning like first, the early, the early ways that people spoke in Trinitarian language. Because here's the thing. You may have heard, if you listen to different, different podcasts who are, are deconstructing Christianity and stuff like that, you may once in a while hear just this flippant remark that says, well, the Trinity wasn't invented until the fourth century. And they'll say this and they'll keep moving. That is actually, it's a half truth, right? It's something that they're saying to help you sort of deconstruct, to sort of push you to deconstruct something. The idea, the word Trinity and the way it is described, yes, 
fourth century. We're going to talk about this in just a second. But these texts were written down very shortly after the death of Christ in the early church. And the way that they talked about Jesus, the way that they spoke about his relationship with God was very much Trinitarian, whether or not they named it or argued for it. Um, some of the proto-Trinitarian texts, we already looked at this one, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where Jesus is included in the Shema, in the Holy Shema. Um, but then you have others. You have Colossians 1, 15, where it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's, he's not being vague. Jesus was at the beginning of all things. The son was there. That's how he's speaking about it. Um, and then we go a little farther in Romans 8. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So you have the Jewish idea of the spirit of God now from, from the Hebrew scriptures, and he says, that, and he says that, that the adoption of God's children has been brought about by the spirit. So now... You have all three with different jobs working together and the people reading these texts when they were finally written down as a canon and given to the church and they begin to read it and they're having a hard time wrapping their minds around how the early Christians before them, 200 years earlier, spoke about Jesus. And, and they're having a really hard time picturing sort of this idea that God is one, but God is three. And of course, like all good thinking people do, well, we're going to figure this out then. We're going to write out exactly how this works, the structure, the hierarchy, and this is what we're going to do. And that's what gives us another fancy theological word, the Christological heresies, right? Okay. And that word Christology. Okay. So yes, we're going to talk about the H word, heresy for a second. Okay. And I'm going to speak of this in a way that I think will help you understand it. Um, and that will free you from the fear of, uh, of, of, of being, well, of, of having to call people heretics and being called a heretic yourself. Heresies are specific things that played specific roles and parts and gave us what we now have. Um, and I feel like we had to go through these things and so that we can have what we have now. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this relatively as fun as I can, as fun as church history can be. Um, and there's some things that stand out to me here that I think are fascinating. And if you lose interest, hop on Facebook live tweet, whatever you want. Um, okay, here we go. So it was obvious that the very existence of Jesus uh, sort of ruined the idea of Jesus that had held for so long, that suddenly there was this new thing we had to come to grips with. And over the early church centuries, a lot of people attempted to solve the problem of, of the Trinity. Well, what exactly is Jesus? Is Jesus divine or is Jesus human? How do we explain all of this? Um, and so there was a few attempts. There was these people called the Docetists. Um, and the Docetists, um, this was their solution. They said that Jesus wasn't really human, okay? Um, he was divine. Um, he was basic, they basically believed that he only appeared to be human, but was actually God. Um, by the way, as I go through these, I want you to ponder how many of these you either might believe now or have believed at different points in your life. Um, a survey was done recently um, that showed that most Christians actually still struggle with all these things and still tend to think in these terms, okay? Um, and that's one of the reasons I want to have sort of this conversation about the ancient Christian view of Jesus. 
Um, so the docetist basically said, Jesus wasn't really a human. He looked like a human. Um, and so basically, if I were to define, like give a modern example of, of this, it would, be, it would be Superman. So he looks human, right? But he's not human. Obviously from somewhere else. And he's just here, and he's walking amongst us, all right? Um, and you can hear some of this in modern evangelicalism. There's a song we sing at Christmas time that goes, The little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Wait, why didn't he cry? Because he was God. Oh, that's a heresy. Okay, see how this works? Um, that was something that Christians thought at the beginning when they're trying to figure this out. Um, that Jesus was not human, so he never cried. He never stubbed his toes in the dark. Um, he never had a cold. He never cut his finger. Um, he, you know, like, and we tend, no, he just wasn't human at all, but he, but he was. That's what Paul is telling us. And that's what the early writers of scripture are, are telling us that he was fully human. And so this doesn't fit. Okay. Now let's go a little farther. You have the Ebionites and the Ebionites or Ebionites, I'll call them Ebionites. It's easier. Um, they tried to resolve this difficulty in the completely opposite way. They declared that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was not God. So um, they declared that the Holy Spirit sort of came upon him once in a while and allowed him to do these amazing things. But really he's just a person. So he would put on this sort of like spirit suit and do th amazing things and then take it back off. So in other words, he's Batman. Um, <laughs> He just is gadget belt, right? But it's like a Holy Spirit. And he would put it on and he would do these things and then he would take it off and he's mild mannered, you know? I'm not a comic book guy. Okay, so I'm getting confused between Superman and, oh well. He's not Clark Kent, that's for sure. Okay, um, Superman was not Batman. Never mind, I'm gonna keep moving. Okay, um, and then there's this guy named Arius. Oh wait, hold on, let me think. Is there ways that uh, he was the Messiah, but he was not? I hear this once in a while coming up. Um, can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, so I'm going to keep moving. Um, there's this guy named Arius. He was a deacon in the Church of Alexandria. He came up with another idea. Very smart guy, trying to figure this out. He's got a pastor of a church. He's a deacon, trying to lead his people, help them. They're asking questions about, well, what I read here, that doesn't make any sense in my, in my brain. I can't wrap my mind around God. And so he suggested that, that Jesus was the Son of God, a full member of the Trinity, but that he was not eternal. Okay, so these are people called the Arianians. It's hard to say, but Arianians. Basically, Jesus was God, but he was not eternally existent. Like he was, he was born and did not exist before that eternally. Um, and so obviously, obviously, this is Thor. Um, so he's like born, right? And he's just like, God, here I am. I'm born. Where were you last week? I didn't exist, but now I do. Let's go. Like, and he's moving forward. And this is how sometimes, like, I, I hear this in normal conversations. Sometimes here, I try to point it out. Oh, it's a heresy, but that, keep going. Um, you know, um, I understand people struggle wrapping their mind around God. I want to work to free you from that this morning, by the way. We'll get there. Um, and so this is the Arians. And let me go a little farther. There's these people called, uh, there's this man called Apollinarius. He was the bishop of, of Laodicea. And the Apollinarians believed that Jesus had a human body, but a divine mind and will. So inside, he's God. Outside, he's person. He's God in a person suit, right? Obviously, he's the Terminator. He's just wearing human skin, but he's God on the inside. And I know what you're thinking. Terminator's not a superhero. He was a bad guy. That was only in part one. <laughs> he was pretty good the rest of the time, except for the killing. Um, so um, this, is, this is how the Apollinarians talked about it. So Jesus didn't, basically, Jesus didn't have any ethical or moral development, that he was born knowing everything, 
that his brain didn't need to learn and grow. He wasn't, sometimes he wouldn't hear something and be like, oh, that makes sense now. Like, like none of this would have ever happened to Jesus because inside, fully, fully divine and only appeared to be human on the outside. Um, that's just not how the early Christians spoke about Jesus. It says, John uses words. It says he grew and developed in stature. He, this is a Greek way of saying like, he was a boy and grew into a man. Like he went through all of the things that boys go through when they're growing into men. They have to, they, they, they learn. They mentally ascend to ideas. They, um, they wrestle with things and grapple with things. Jesus fully underwent the human experience. Um, and this is how we must talk of him. Um, and then there's another one, uh, the Nestorians. Uh, Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople, and he thought really long and hard about all of this, and he decided that something else entirely is going on. And so the Nestorians believed that Jesus had two natures, but they were separated and accessed separately. So you had Jesus, and inside Jesus, there's sort of this space where on one side, God is there. On the other side, human is there, and that he's like jumping back and forth, between the two, a.k.a. the Hulk, <laughs> right? And he's jumping back and forth, and, and the two never meet. They never come together. Um, and so this kept happening over and over. People are coming up with new ways to describe who Jesus was, how Jesus lived, how this functioned, how he could be divine and human at the same time. And so it became such a problem that in the year 325... The church said, hey, we need to have a bit of a conference here. We're going to have a Zoom meeting and get everybody on the line because <laughs> there's, some, there's some confusion about what's going on. So um, uh, the internet wasn't working. So they gathered, they gathered in Nicaea in 325, okay? Um, and, in, and in 325, they came together and they brought all of their writings and all of their thoughts and representatives from all these different sides. And they came together to figure out how, how, do we talk about God? How do we talk about Jesus? How can we do it in a way that frees people from struggling with all of this? How can we, as, as one people, speak of Jesus in a way that honors his humanity and honors his divinity and gives us space to wrestle with it and make sense of it while still maintaining a form of orthodoxy? with the early church. And so they came up with several things. One of the things that they, that they decided as they're writing their documents and as they're coming to their findings, and this lasted a long time, um, is that they decided that God is a mystery to behold. God is not a math problem to figure out. God must be thought of as mystery. Um, and the mystery must be embraced against all of our inclinations to figure God out. God must be thought of as a mystery. The second thing they came up with was that God is a mystery that cannot be deconstructed. The whole point of a mystery is that you cannot take it all apart and look at it because once you do, it's no longer mysterious. Uh, and then you're going to put it back together and you're going to say, well, I know exactly how it functioned. And, and what their argument is, it doesn't, that is not how God works. You cannot dissect and take God apart in this way. And the third thing that they decided was that God is a mystery that cannot be explained and in fact, they were, they were very wary of any attempts to explain exactly how God worked and how it functioned and how God moved and how the three 
uh, members of, of this Trinitarian God could be one and have this relationship and their different roles. And, and instead, they wiped the slate clean and said, what we have is what we have. And the people who were there grasped it so easily when they saw Jesus that they didn't need to struggle with this the way we do. And so we will stop, just simply decide to stop struggling with this. And what they came up with uh, is this thing called the Nicene Creed. Uh, this is like when you flip to our own belief statement, this is what it is. This is the earliest Christian creed of who Jesus is. The whole point of the, Christian, of the, of the Nicene Creed is, um, is to define sort of how we speak about God as Christians. It's the earliest Christian document that lays it all out. And it's very long. We're not going to go through the whole thing. We have it up on our website. You can literally Google it, uh, Nicene Creed. Um, <clears throat> um, but I, I do want to point out sort of a, a few different, uh, you know, greatest hits, if you will. Um, <clears throat> first off, they decided the Son, they described the, they described the Son as begotten of the Father and of one being with the Father. This word that they use, this fancy word they came up with, it's, it's humusios. Everyone, humusios. Weird word, right? Um, basically, it's one word that we translate as same being, the same essence as the Father, that he's not different than the Father. He's the same as the Father, although he's different from the Father, but his, his being is the same. His essence is the same because he's equal. And then, and then you keep reading and it says the Son is incarnate of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit has a part in this as well, incarnate of the Holy Spirit, and his kingdom will have no end. So it, he also has this sort of royal essence in the same way that Yahweh did for the, for the Israelites, right? And then you go a little farther and it says the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, not just from one, but from both. Um, and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, all three of them equally receiving worship and recognition as being God and worshiped separately and together and called upon separately and called upon together. And the whole point of the Nicene Creed um, was to free the people from having to figure this whole thing out. What they are giving us is space to have mystery, um, to contemplate, to ponder all of this. Um, and here's the grand takeaway. Um, there's a passage in Matthew that we studied three years ago, at the very beginning of Matthew, where God shows up and speaks, the Spirit of God <laughs> shows up and, and speaks to Joseph, and he says, um, there's this thing you were promised for hundreds of years by the prophets, that one day God would, God would be with us. He would be God with us. This is happening through your wife, Mary. And this child that will be born, you will call his name Emmanuel. Let's read the passage. It says this. It says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This has always been the goal, God with his people. It is the picture we have in Eden. It is the picture we have in the temple that is a place where God and human being are together. And it comes to its full fruition in Jesus. And as Jesus is present with us, the perfect image of God is present with us. 
and the perfect image also of humanity is present with us. And these things are held together in one person that we can both follow and know and love and worship and strive to be like and confess to when we are not and who would lead us out and who is strong enough to fix the things that are broken. And this is where the battle came in with all of these Christological heresies. Um, These are well-intentioned people trying to figure God out for people who are begging for an understanding. I just need it all laid out for me so I can know exactly how to think about everything. And God doesn't give us that. And when you try to figure it out, you end up with, here's a little graph for you. If you end up, if you're an Ebionite, you end up with with someone who who is not God and who is not with, who is just us. Um, that's, that's the Batman, by the way. He's just, he's just one of us with a spirit suit, right? And then you go a little farther. The docetists, if the docetists are right, then what we end up with is Jesus is kind of deceitful. Whereas the first one, he's kind of destitute. He's just a person. The second one, he's deceitful. He's lying to us. Um, he's God. And he's just trying to make us think that he's with and that he's us. He's kind of lying to us. And then if the, if the Arians, if the Arianians are right, um, then God is, these, these are alliterated. God is disconnected. See that? If you speak, if, if you do topical sermons, you can alliterate them. Um, God is sort of disconnected, right? Um, he's, he's not God, but he is with, and he's us. Um, and and if, if the Apollinarians are right, then he is God and he is with, but he's not us. And if the Nestorians are right, then he is God, but he's not with uh, but he's us because he's separated. So there's a God in there and there's an us in there, but they don't come together. He's not with. Like, what is the answer? Well, the answer is the creed. After the Nicene Creed was written, the people sort of kept, these ideas kept popping up and these battles kept happening for a little while. Um, and that's why um, 150 years later or so, there was, there was an, another council, um, Al-Chalcedon, Chalcedon. Um, that they affirmed once again and they sort of expanded the creed and went a little farther to lay it all out. But the whole point of the Nicene Creed is to give us an adequate picture of who Jesus particularly is, God with us. And here's what we can learn from this whole episode. And this is what I want you to sort of ponder and take away and talk with maybe in your house churches. Um, Where does heresy come from? Heresy. does not come, despite what you've read on Facebook, it does not come um, from, from a bunch of liberals trying to explain God away so they can do what they want. It doesn't come from a bunch of fundamentalists trying to, um, trying to capture God and put it down to force everyone into a box. Heresy always arises when we try to explain things that ought not be explained. That's where heresy actually comes from. Um, oftentimes, sure, it, it can have good intentions. Um, sometimes it can have bad intentions. Um, But heresy typically is an attempt to explain God and say, here, I figured it out. This is exactly who Jesus was. He worked just like this, and there was this hierarchy, and and Jesus is, he submits to the Father always. Um, When we do this, we inevitably either end up creating the old heresies once again. And if you talk to people, I mean, um, this survey that was done said that 70% of evangelicals are Arianists. That, they, that most of us are always trying to figure out exactly how God works 
and dropping ourselves into some form of Christological heresy. I mean, that's not even laying out the Trinitarian heresies, which we're going to talk a little bit about next week. Um, because when you have a right understanding of the Trinity, it actually sets you free. Um, next week, I'm going to talk about how, how right Trinitarian theology sets us free from things like from things like hierarchy and sets us free from things like patriarchy and sets us free from all of these things that we enslave ourselves to. And the whole entire point of what God is showing us is that God wants you to be free of having to understand everything, that God is faithful to you, um, be faithful to your office and your calling that God has placed upon you and embrace a mystery of God, that God is present. This is the only way you can approach Jesus, both as friend and as God and as king and as your love and that you can follow and that you can confess to and that you can confide in. The only way that Jesus can be what you need Jesus to be is to stop trying to figure Jesus out. Read the scriptures and in that moment what you are reading, worship and embrace what you see. Because these ideas came from people who knew and walked with Jesus. And when they looked at Jesus, this is what they saw. They had fully developed understanding of who God was. And then Jesus comes along and shatters this whole thing and gives them something completely new. Yet somehow it fits into the revelation that they have received before. And so instead of sitting around trying to philosophize and figure out exactly who God is and how God works. Jesus has actually commanded you, the most important thing you can do is to love God and love people. Pour yourself out for those people in the same way that Jesus did. Strive to be like Jesus and follow Jesus as your king. Hold these things, this monotheism and this Trinitarian theology, hold them together in a way that is healthy and beneficial. Don't try to deconstruct God. Embrace the mystery of who God is. This is what we learn from the beginning of church history, from trying to understand how these ancient people wrestled with God. Next week, as we move into sort of some of the icons of Trinity, I want to, I want to talk about one icon of the Trinity in particular. And I want to ponder it and I want to meditate upon it together and look at what we see. How, what does this mean that the early Christians, what did they see in the Trinity that was so important for them and what they were going through and the oppression that they were under and what this did for them? And I want you to search right now. We're going to go into a time of communion, um, keeping it pretty light today. Uh, our communion service, you guys can go and gather the elements and, and, and spread around the room. Um, as we go to communion today, I would like for you to kind of search your heart, search how you think about Jesus. And I want you to ponder, have I explained away something very, very important to the early church's understanding of Jesus. Something that has actually kept me from being able to fully follow Jesus in the way that I should. To fully lay my life down and pour myself out for the people around me. Because oftentimes when we are trying to explain the divinity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, we do it in a way that frees us from some obligation that we have in the gospel. To love and follow people. And we need to repent of this stuff. If we search deep enough, we will all see that in some way, we all hold some form of heresy, right? Like, because we don't have the experience the early followers of Jesus had. 
We can't see what they saw, but we can read it and we can ponder it and we can ask the spirit of God to come over us and to reveal these things to us and to enlighten us and to show us how to follow. And that starts now with things like communion, these rituals that we do. And so why don't we pray? Why don't we spend some time in repentance and adjusting our thought process? And for now, I want you to take a few minutes and hold the mystery of God, of Jesus, of his divinity and his humanity. I want you to hold that mystery in your hand and ponder it and do what you can now to embrace it and make this a practice of yours. Um, And when we're done, take some time to pray and then be on your way. You're dismissed. If you want to stick around and talk, if you have questions, um, I'm here to hang out with you and talk with you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would give us hearts that um, are humble, minds that are open. I pray that you would help us to see how Jesus revealed God in, in this whole new way. I pray that your spirit would come upon us and guide us to a fuller understanding of Jesus. I pray that we, when we come together, would be the presence of Jesus in this world and he would speak to us. I pray that we would understand that uh, the Father has created and put us here for a reason with the help of the Spirit and the guidance of the Son and that we would take part in this relationship of the Trinity. That out of this community of oneness, we were created, and may our lives emulate that. May we not be a people who isolate ourselves and attempt to work on our own. May we not be a people um, who shun community, but, but understand that in community like this, in the community of God is where life is created, and that we would find that here. Humble us and guide us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Grace and peace. Take communion and have a great week.